I don't think you can have a serious coaching and leadership podcast without speaking to this guy. Michael Bungay-Stanya is at the forefront of shaping how organizations around the world make being coach-like an essential leadership competency. You may have come across Michael from his book, The Coaching Habit. It's a bestseller, the best-selling coaching book this century, and has over 700,000 copies sold. And it's got over a thousand five-star ratings on Amazon as well. He's a former Rhodes Scholar. He's been named the number one thought leader in coaching. And he was shortlisted for the coaching prize by Thinkers 50, which is the Oscars of management. Michael's got a new book coming out, The Advice Trap. It's out on February 29th. And if you're listening before that date, there's a ton of pre-order bonuses on the advice trap. Michael, absolutely delighted to have you on Where Others Won't. It is nice to be here. I may be your first guest who understands what Aussie Rules is. So this is exciting for me and for you. <laughs> for both of us, yeah. Well, I've, so I've been in Toronto for 10 years and we've never been introduced, which is also bizarre. It is. We must have a lot of common friends, I think. Well, well when, you, when you meet a North American and they find out you're Australian, there's kind of like a decision tree. They, they, kind <laughs> of, they, they go with like, oh, I love Australia and I've been and they tell you that story. Or it's, yep. I love Australia, I've never been, I want to go. Or it's, <laughs> or it's, I know another Australian. So somehow in 10 years, we've never had that person go, oh, this guy named Michael, you need to meet him. <sighs> that is hilarious. And that is absolutely true. So there we go. The gods have finally put us together. Let's hope it was worth waiting for. <laughs> All right, well, let's do our, our little meeting now. So I've got to ask you where you're from back home. Sure. I uh, born in Melbourne, but grew up in Canberra. So I'm very much a Canberra boy. Um, went to high, you know, primary school there, high school there, did an arts law degree at ANU, um, but won a scholarship that took me overseas to the UK uh, when I was 25, 24. And, uh, you know, left there intending to come back after a couple of years, but fell in love with a Canadian. So plan A out the window, plan B follow Marcella and you know in the subsequent close to 30 years now we've lived in England for a while in uh, Boston for a while and in Toronto for about 20 years so I'm the opposite born in Canberra moved to Melbourne and then similar from there on got in got involved in footy wait you're you're also married to my wife how did that happen <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, well, I didn't know about it <laughs> yeah exactly and this so this is what the podcast is for. So we're going to have a, a therapy session and work this whole thing out. Perfect. It's an intervention. <laughs> it makes it even more remarkable that we haven't met in all this time, but there we go. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> well, let me ask you this then, because as an outsider coming to Toronto, you've been here 20 years, I've been here 10 years. How have you seen the, the city develop and grow? Because it's really found its identity even since I've been here and, and you go back further than that. So yeah. Like, what are your thoughts on, on just Toronto and how it's evolving in your time? 
that's a really good question. I mean, there's there's a really physical, obvious change, which is just a lot of building that's happening. There's a lot of infill that's happening. There's a sense that the the center is returning to the city because you know there's that classic you 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 build a city then you build the suburbs and then people leave to go to the suburbs and it leaves the center a little bit bare well yeah. there's a real sense that there's this densification happening in toronto but it's more than just buildings going up i think you know there's um a more integrated swagger around the benefits that we we have in Toronto. You know, for 20 years I've been going, look, we're a really multicultural um, city. Mm-hmm. And we are, you know, I've heard the, the most multicultural city in the world. But there's somehow that that's felt a little less fragile and a little more integrated as to actually this is, this is who we are, this is how we show up in the world. And you know, the other thing I always heard about Toronto was it's like a clean New York. It's always just drove me nuts. Because <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but it just feels like it's patronizing somewhere along the line. <laughs> and, you know, uh, New York is amazing and, di- and different from Toronto. But you've you got to say Toronto holds its own in terms of cool places to eat, cool places to go and see bands, cool places to go and do things. You can find that in New York, uh, in Toronto as well. And that's the cultural change that I describe to people who are outsiders when I talk about Toronto is, you know, in my 10 years here, you nailed it there. There was no one wanted to be from here when they described themselves to even other Canadians when I arrived. And it's gone from that to everyone wants to tell not just other Canadians, but international people that they're from Toronto. There's a, a really cool buzz, obviously, about the basketball team and, and the, the oh, yeah. you know, uh, the celebrities on the national scene, like a Drake and a Justin Bieber and whoever else, whoever you're into, but it's all emanating around this one place. And it's been really cool to watch. Yeah. You know, I, I have to say, I, as you know, for, for the many people who listen to this who aren't Canadian, there's been a reputation for a long time about the rest of Canada not really liking Toronto, you know, because it's full of the elites who don't understand how real Canadians live or whatever it might be. And I, I never understood that because as somebody who traveled and lived in different cities, I was like, Toronto does, I mean, it, 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 it's not totally unfair. There's a degree of kind of swagger that Toronto carries yeah. where Canada's biggest city. But it's also like it's a great city and it's mostly full of, you know, solid people who like their city and are good people in this world. And it's like it's better than like lots of other cities. <laughs> no, I always felt like it got unfairly judged by the rest of Canada. And on top of that, it was unfair because no one's really from here. Right. So not only the immigration, but even the Canadians, everyone's from outside the city and there's never been more evidence than that. If, you, if you're around here on a public holiday, Christmas right. or everyone leaves because their families all live back in the towns that they came from. So everyone's well, coming true. anyway. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't even thought of that, but I, yeah, your point is spot on. Let's, let's get into business. I, I want to talk right. to you about coaching your book or about to be books but your first book uh, that I picked up was The Coaching Habit and it had a, a okay. huge impact on, on how I coach. I know it's done for, for plenty of other people as well. But I ask this of sports coaches mostly because I'm interested in the nonlinear path and I know you have a nonlinear path in terms of 
how you got into coaching and having a business around coaching. But yeah. I want to know, like, what, what was the catalyst moment for you? What was the pathway? And then there had to be that, that moment where you're sitting there saying, I'm going to start something around this because I see the power in it. Yeah, sure. So and see, it, it, it started in Canberra as a teenager because I was somebody who ended up sitting with my friends in a car at two o'clock in the morning, having listening to somebody talk about their angst-filled teenage life <laughs> and going, I'm actually good at listening to people, at being a sort of sympathetic ear, but I, I don't know what I'm doing here at all. You know, I'm not sure if this is the best, you know, Apart from just being empathetic, what else do you do that is actually useful? So when I went to university, I signed up for a, um, a youth crisis telephone line. So, you know, youth suicide hotline thing. Yeah, yeah. And that was actually the, the start of accumulating knowledge and experience in this world. Did that in, at ANU, um, moved to Oxford, did that at Oxford. And just had that piece. And then when I started my career, my first job was in the world of innovation and creativity. So I was working for a firm that helped invent stuff. You know, somebody would call us up, you know, hey, I'm Heinz. We, we make soup. We need to come up with some ideas for next season's soup line. We're hiring you to, to do that for us. And um, there were some really great advantages to that job. It was innovation. It was create creativity. So the yeah. fact that I had long hair and earrings and kind of colorful clothing, they're like, you're cool and weird. We like that. Um, <laughs> and uh, what they trained me to do was market research, which was actually sitting down and asking questions and listening to answers. So I spent a lot of time running focus groups, which is another way of coming at this discipline of staying curious longer. Yeah, you know, the disadvantage was I was inventing soup, which is not that exciting a job, but it taught me some great principles. And after that, I, I, I went into the world of change management, so helping organizations evolve and change and get different. And, and that's when I first came across coaching as a concept, as a, as a discipline, as a profession. Um, I was in London at the time, London, England, and I just started reading about this thing that was happening in California, it's coaching. I'm like, first of all, I'm in London, so you have to be cynical and sarcastic about everything, but particularly because it's from California, you're like, what is that? It's probably some flaky, touchy-feely. Yeah, all those people in the Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be honest, that's, that wasn't, that's not an unfair characterization, but it got me interested and uh, when with the company I was with, they moved me from London to Boston to set up an office in Boston. I started talking about myself as a coach. I hired my first ever coach to, to, to so I get the experience of what does it mean to be coached. And it was enough so that come 2002, when I moved to Toronto, I did my first formal coach training. And I, and I trained myself up, did all the work, became a coach, and then, ironically, pretty quickly went, I don't really love coaching. <laughs> I was like, this is so confusing. I've got this lifetime of loving this stuff, and yet when I'm actually trying to build a career around it, it's, it's not really doing it for me. So what's going on with that? And uh, I realized that more than a coach, I'm a, I'm a teacher and a performer. You know, I like to write books. I like to be on stage. I like to be 
in front of an audience and coaching can be a little invisible. So I dismantled my coaching uh, practice, but built a company called Boxer Crayons, which is a champion for coaching as a force for change within organizations. And we've trained, you know, north of 150,000 people around the world now in some an approach to coaching which makes coaching practical and useful and fast and an everyday way of showing up and behaving. And I was listening to you on The Daily Talk Show, which is an Australian podcast. Those guys are great. And they asked you what you do and you really struggled to answer that. So, you know, you were talking there where, you know, you started identifying as a coach and you called yourself a coach and you were being coached. And then now let's fast forward to now and kind of that struggle with like, what do you do and who are you? Yeah. What goes through your mind when people ask you that now? I just go, you're, you're provoking a midlife crisis here. Are you sure, <laughs> are you, sure you want to do this? I'm a, you know, I'm a middle-aged man. What it, what's the purpose of life? Actually, I'm, I'm exaggerating. But, <laughs> I, but I mean, but very specifically, one of the things that's happened to me in the last six months is um, I've stopped being the CEO of Box of Crayons. I handed over that role to somebody on the team and she's now running the company and doing a brilliant job. But it's very interesting because after nearly 20 years, I'm not the guy who's running Box of Crayons. Yeah. So, part, so there's a kind of two two levels of answer to this. One is a sort of a really interesting inflection point in my own life. Going, well, what do I, who am I now? You know, I've taken off a cloak which was really readily uh, attributed to me, which is that he's the guy who he's the box of crayons guy, right. and I'm not the box of crayons guy anymore. So there's just that existential question. Well, if I'm not the box of crayons guy, who am I now? And then there's another level to that question, which is, you know, what do you do is, is sometimes not that interesting a question. And it's sometimes a way of kind of putting people into a bucket or a pigeonhole or whatever it might be. So part of what I then go is, am I trying to define myself by what I do? Or is there just another language about how I can talk about who I am um, in this world? But, you know, to, to give it a very fast label in the moment. So I, I was, I'm the founder of Boxer Crayons. I'm, I'm, I now watch while Shannon runs the company with far more style than I ever could. And I am, I'm now a writer and a speaker in the world of kind of with curiosity at the center. I came across this quote the other day, Cody, which from Nabokov, it says, curiosity is the purest form of insubordination. And I love that. That's I don't great. even fully know what it means, but I'm like, that's kind of what I want to build a business around. So why I asked the question in the first place is because I struggle with that question too. And it's not just the fact that most people think Aussie rules is rugby. That is, yeah. <laughs> that's, certainly, <laughs> that's certainly part of it. But it's this, this fact that I, I am uh, cheeky, and I want to just respond with, I'm a leader. Right. If you were to ask me how I identify myself, it's that. And what that means is that I'm not necessarily the CEO, but I'm willing to put my hand up and play the best role within whatever team I'm in at that time. Yeah. And so that means if someone else is, is better being in charge and making the ultimate decisions than me, then that's great. 
And if they want me to do that and I feel confident that I can actually uh, create an environment for others to, to be able to thrive, I'll do that too. And, but again, it doesn't answer the question that people want. Yeah. It's not, it's not really the answer there that it's not really the question they're asking. <laughs> no, <laughs> they, they want, they want me, they want you to say accountant and yeah. uh, well, who do you work for? And, um, yeah, so, I've so, just, I, I continue to struggle with that. So I've got, a, I've got, a, I've got two thoughts. The first is you just start making up things. You know, I'm a hot air pilot, you know, I'm a spy. <laughs> you know, well, I'm, well, as far as, as far as the Australian tax office are concerned, my name is wing commander Cody Royal. So exactly. I, exactly. So, <laughs> I, uh, I have a, a friend in the, who was in the Australian Navy and he retired when he became Commodore because that was the rank James Bond was. And I was like, hey, that's, that, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> the other the other way that I've heard people deal with this, I got this from a, another Toronto guy called Michelle Nere. And when he he this is more in the context of when you've got you got a business and somebody says, So give me your give me your elevator pitch, which mm. is, you know, generally speaking, a disaster <laughs> and boring. Yeah. And you don't know whether and, and somebody's shouting at somebody else who isn't kind of really listening. So Michelle taught me this trick. He said, and Cody, I don't know enough about you, but I'll I'll make something up. But he goes, so Cody, you know how in organizations there are some people who always step up to the game and there are other people who step away from what needs to be done? Mm -hmm. And you go, yes, I do, Michael. And I go, yeah. And you know how that the people who step forward and really kind of play the role that's needed of them in their moment are really valued. And the people who kind of opt out and just do their job are less valued. And wouldn't it be great if there were just more people in this world who went, when I see what needs to be done, that's what I do rather than wait to be told what to do. And they're like, yeah. And you go, well, that's what I do. I help. I do this myself and I help others understand what needs to be done and have the courage and focus to step up and do that thing. And what I love about that as a structure, you know, and the basic structure is, Hey, you know, when, and you know, when, and you know, when, and wouldn't it be great if, well, that's what I do is a way of engaging people in a kind of a dialogue that they're either walking with you as you get to the kind of summary of what you do, or you've lost them at step two, in which case you can just stop talking because they're not that interested. <laughs> yeah. I love you go, hey, you know, you know when, and they go, no, not really. You're like, okay, fine. I'm, I am actually a hot air pilot, hot air balloon pilot. <laughs> okay, fine. I've got another cold beer in the fridge. I'm going to go over and get that now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love, yeah, I, I love the, the building of the anticipation there. And it's, right. it's, it's fascinating that you say that because uh, my business partner posted on LinkedIn earlier this week talking about superpowers and this idea of, you know, what, what's your superpower? And, and I responded with, I'm not actually sure. And he actually responded with essentially what you've just described, the person that can adapt to whatever that situation is. Yeah. And I looked at that and thought, that's not a thing. That's not a thing that that's not a superpower, but it was funny that you, like even just that example. And I know it was a made up example, but yeah. it's essentially that. And it turns out it is a thing. It totally is a thing. You know, I don't know if you've come across the work of Liz Wiseman, but Liz is 
fantastic. She's based in Silicon Valley. Uh, she's best known for her book Multipliers, but her other book called Rookie Smarts is really great as well. And I've taken a look at the research that's going to be in her next book. And she effectively has done research that's identified who are the people that are make most of a difference in an organization who are most valued by their leaders and what are the behaviors that they do that make them three and a half times more valuable than the person who just does their job. And one mm -hmm. of them is this ability to kind of see what needs to be done and then have the courage to step up and do it. Liz's, Liz's new book's probably at least a year away, but it's going to be so good when it comes out. Yeah, that's transformational and timely. I think um, as we kind of go through this, you know, people first revolution that is only just beginning and, and yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Uh, let, let, let me hook on to Liz because I know you've been a, a big fan of hers for a long time. I want to ask sure. you where you draw your inspiration from. So, for instance, for me, just by the nature of being an Aussie rules coach in Canada and just be, I was interested in different sports, I studied American football before I'd even left Australia. And then coming over here, there's no coaching conferences that I can go to. And so I started looking at all these different disciplines and cross-pollinating all those ideas. Love it. And, and so I've looked at, you know, the communication structures and patterns in stand-up comedy. Still relevant. Yeah. I've still got to stand up in front of a group of people and deliver a totally. persuasive message. I've looked at cultural stereotypes and belief systems and other sports and, and, and what your work and other books and, you know, Adam Grant's books and you know, the psychology behind it, movies and TV shows. But where do you go? You know, um, I try and go wide. Yeah. I'm a very big believer that what is often interesting is that cross fertilization that you were just talking about. You know, my background is in as a I did a master's degree at Oxford in English literature, and I, I read a lot of fiction, but I read a lot of science, and I read a bunch of business books as well. But I read just broadly because you never know when the new perspective pops up that you go, "Hey, this could be interesting." And there's also just something to your point around a willingness to experiment in different disciplines. So just like you, you know, two years ago, I did the stand-up course at um, Second City. So you, 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 it's like an eight-week course. You spend eight weeks writing bad jokes. Here's, here's one of the insights I didn't know about stand-up co comedy. There's a lot of unfunny almost all the time in stand-up comedy. It's, it's excruciating <laughs> watching people kind of stand up and, and try and be funny when they're, they're clearly, they're either not funny or they just don't have good material. And that culminated in a, a you know, a five-minute stand-up gig. You get, you get an audience and you get out and you perform. And just like you, I was like, this is really interesting because – you know, I'm an experienced keynote speaker. I do that regularly. I've done it big audiences of 10,000 10, or more. Um, and uh, in some ways, doing it in front of an audience of 150 for five minutes for is very different because as a keynote speaker, 
everybody's amazed if you're even vaguely amusing. They're like, he's hilarious. He cracked a joke once every five minutes. It was fantastic. (laughs) You've got a stand-up comedian. You're like, we're expecting five jokes a minute. So get on with it because I've been waiting 12 seconds and I'm bored. It's a whole different discipline. So, um, and, you know, before you hit the record button, we were saying that I'd, uh, at the age of 50-something last season, went and played my first ever competitive games and competitive season of Aussie rules. And and I I was basically, (laughs) let's just say that uh, Cody won't be recruiting me for the Canadian (laughs) Aussie rules team anytime soon. (laughs) Um, you know, I was I was basically not very good. I didn't know how to play the game. I got some of the basics of kicking a ball, but really I didn't know where to run to or how to show up. And there is something, particularly I think as you get a little older, you know, I've set up a life where for the most part I succeed. <laughs> you right. know, I put myself in situations where I don't fail very often because honestly it's like, it's gratifying for my fragile male ego to be more of a success than not. Um, so then there's part of me that goes, so now how do you put yourself in a position where it is hard and you do struggle and you, and you potentially fail because, you know, I learned a lot playing for the uh, Toronto blues um, over the summer uh, because I was clearly not the leader, not the leader on the field and, and often uh, Often I am. And it's, it, well, it's a fascinating sport on its own, but the fact that you can be the 17th and 18th guy and still be on the field and a, a part of that team is, right. is, is certainly rare in the sports world, let alone the, the broader sphere of participating in a team. Yeah, we were we were we were always understaffed. So I was like, I was the fourteenth <laughs> person on the guy. team, and that was a problem. That was a problem is, for all of us. Yeah. Which is even harder. <laughs> well, well, one of the things that I've discovered about myself through coaching and leadership, not just studying it and writing about it, but also being a practitioner and trying to build a high-performing team, is that I've realised that the person that I coach the most is myself. And this is where, in particular, your work and the prompts that you provide have helped me. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you coach yourself. Like what's your mental skills framework for kind of applying what you tell others to do to yourself? Well, the first thing to, from, to, when you're coaching yourself, or at least this is true for me coaching Michael, coaching Michael, is that, he is slippery, elusive, annoying, evasive. I mean, I am a terrible person to try and coach. I'm terrible if you're somebody else. I'm particularly duplicitous if I'm trying to coach myself. (laughs) So part of it, part of the advantage of having a coach is just that, that action of externalizing the stuff that's going on in your head. The once removed element. Yeah. Yeah, because when somebody asks you a question, you have to answer it. You actually have to answer it rather than half answering it and then getting distracted and doing Twitter on your phone or something like that. So I've found that the act of externalizing it is helpful for me. So I've tried a bunch of things. Um, The thing that's working for me at the moment is the bullet journal approach, Mm. which is – um, you know, having a journal, having a pen, taking it most places with you, 
and using that as your thing where you capture the day, capture the ideas in your head. And also at the start of the day, I will just, first thing I do before I open up, you know, gadgets and laptops and the like is write in the journal, write what I'm up to today. Um, occasionally I'll be, I'll take a kind of reflection on where I'm at and what's going on and what the struggle is for me and use some of the questions that are in the books and the like as kind of prompts for myself. But, um, but I have, but you know, I, I literally do have, um, well, I have a, a coach, Ernest, who's been my coach for 13 years now. I have a mastermind group who I check in with uh, maybe three to five times a week on, on kind of a web forum. And we talk every two weeks and we meet once a year for like three or four days. Um, I have, uh, you know, my wife is my business partner and she is on the board of Boxer Crowns as I am. So that's part of a kind of coaching type conversation as well. Some of my best friends, because I'm in this world, are coaches. So inevitably they're like, so Michael, what are you and how do you and why would you? And they have those questions. So I spend, honestly, the key, in terms of coaching myself, a big part of it is to not coach myself <laughs> because I'm like, I'm too, I'm too slippery. I need that external guidance to help me um, be smarter about who I am and what I'm trying to do. I love <laughs> Thank you for the self-awareness to, to say I, I'm much <laughs> the same. I, I would hate to coach me for a number of yeah. reasons, but yeah, the... Uh, I think setting up that framework, I think that's an important discussion actually for coaches in general. Most of the people listening to this will be in, in sports coaching or middle management and have potentially taken one of those avenues, maybe hired a, a coach of, of some way, shape or form. It might even be a personal trainer, someone external that can just help the, you know tick the wheels over a little bit. But it, I, I think right. it really is about, creating an, an entire environment for yourself like you try to create a holistic environment for your employees or your team members. And like you said, you've got so many different avenues and touch points to go to that you can't help but fall into the, the kind of minutiae of it and have to expose yourself when you're feeling down and have to talk about certain things when, right. when they're uh, standing in the way of, of your progress. You know, I, there's language I have around this, which I call this social contracting, which is a concept I first heard from a guy called Peter Block, um, who's a kind of writer in the world of organizational development and, and the like. And um, social contracting is when you talk about and negotiate how you're going to work together rather than what you're working on. And the what you're working on always shouts loudest as this is the thing we should focus on and figure out because it's the problem. But how you're working together really matters in terms of how do you construct a relationship that has the best chance of success? And the kind of questions that are awkward to ask but useful to ask are things like, um, uh, you know, when you've had a relationship like this with somebody and it's worked really well, what happened? What, what did you do? What did the other person do? When you've ha had a, a relationship like this and it hasn't worked well, it's gone off the rails a little bit, what did you do? What did the other person do? When things are going bad, what are the unilateral actions that you take? 
you know, what do you do? Do you run away? Do you fight? Is it flight? Is it faint? Is it something else? You know, how do you manage that? Um, how do you feel about the amount of power and control you have in and over this relationship? And these are unusual questions, but you can see how they're getting to an understanding of, let's talk about the dynamic of this relationship. Mm -hmm. And what Peter Block says is that what you do and don't talk about in that social contracting conversation is often the stuff you can and can't talk about going forward. So if you're in a commercial relationship and you, you don't ever quite talk about the money because it's a bit awkward and you don't like talking about money and you know, you, you don't want to spoil things by telling them how much you cost, then that money thing will always be difficult to talk about and challenging and weird and a bit odd to talk about. So that social contract is a microcosm of the bigger relationship. And what's, what's great about it is not just for the kind of the short term answers that you get, but it's also just a first moment of permission where you say, we'll keep coming back and talking about how this relationship is working and what is working and what's not working so we can keep the health of the relationship um, where we'd like it to be. And I'll just say one other thing before I stop monologuing. The other, the other thing that I use with Shannon, who's the CEO of Box of Crayons, and we introduced this because I have a pattern of being overly positive and then kind of skirting around conflict a little bit to try and avoid it. So Shannon and I, at the end of every conversation, ask each other, what needs to be said that hasn't been said? Hmm. And it's just a doorway that says, oh, here's the thing that I kind of wanted to tell you, but I didn't quite find the way to tell you. It's that swing the door open going, here's your chance to put on the table those niggling doubts, those small frustrations, those little irritants that allow us to keep the, our relationship kind of clean and tidy and strong. That's fantastic. That's where I've, been trying to go with a lot of the coaches that come to me is to create, you know, communication frameworks and communication patterns to open up all of those doors, including the ability for a, a rookie or someone new to the organization to challenge someone senior in the organization or their direct manager. And, and it can just be a, it, it can be an introduction to a sentence or it can be like a right. holistic question like you've just said there um yeah. to really cut through like you said that the stuff that is sitting there and everyone knows it's sitting there but it never gets said right i mean it's really useful to have what social contracting does is it sets up shared understandings about the way into those difficult conversations you know in a previous job we had a kind of a phrase which was, I, I need to have an off my chest, <laughs> which meant I need to basically have a bitch in the moon and your job is to listen and not try and get defensive or complainy or attack me or anything like that. It's just to hear me vent my frustration. That's what I'm Go doing. Go and get my soapbox. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I'm like, I feel better now. And by going, I'm going to have it off my chest, you're saying to the other person, it's coming. 
I'm not, I'm, I might be kind of attacking you, but you've been forewarned. So I'm giving you the best chance for you to show up in the best possible way to hear what's really being said or what I'm trying to say. So we, everybody wins when you're able to do something like that. Let's get grittier around questions. I want to go deeper into this with you. I know, I, I know your background, so I know this is your world. And, and again, the, the people that tend to follow this show are coaches in team sports uh, across, across the world, varying levels from professional all the way down to coaching their, their son or daughters under 12s. And, and just the power of those, those one-on-one coaching and personal development, athlete development questions. I'd love you to kind of teach us how to get to what people are actually saying because one thing is to ask a question. Another is to understand that their response isn't actually what they're saying. And there's a, a way that you can keep digging without being annoying, keep digging to get to the root cause of, of their problem. Yeah. I mean, the first thing and why I love the work that you do is understanding that um, sports coaching and coaching in general aren't as different as sometimes people make them out to be. No. Because there's a way that, you know, in the world of like executive coaching or life coaching, there's a way that you're like, you know, try not to tell them what to do, try to ask questions the whole time. And in the world of sports coaching, I think there's a, an old school approach, which is you only tell them what to do. Your job is to constantly correct, give advice, fine tune, you know, be the wise person who's saying, let me teach you and tell you stuff. And I think that I think both descriptions are wrong. I think if you're a life coach or an executive coach, part of your job is to share stories, share insights, sh- share advice. Um, but stay curious longer. And I think if you're a sports coach, there's a lot of opportunity for you to teach through curiosity and through asking questions to allow them to discover the answer, which is just proven, you know, nine ways and more to be the, the better way of helping people learn rather than, um, rather than being the, let me tell you how to do this. I mean, I yeah. wasn't a couple of years ago, maybe I read a, an article on the All Blacks going, nobody really tells anybody what to do. They just ask a good question here and there and people figure it out. Right. And I'm like, well, you know, the All Blacks, they're, 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 they're a decent, they're a half decent team. You know, they've got their moments. I'd say so. Yeah. So part of the, the way I define coaching is very behavioral. And it's, this is the behavior that I, I'm encouraging everybody listening in to, to, way up and see if it would be useful for you. Can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? Can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? And what's built into that, Cody, is the understanding that there will be a place for telling them what to do, for giving them the advice. But the longer you can wait to tell them that, the more opportunity you give them to have the insight themselves, to have the learning themselves, to make sure that your advice when it comes is the advice that they need to solve the problem that they actually have. So the way I'm hearing your original question is to say, Michael, how do you help people stay curious a little bit longer? And 
if so i'll give you a principle and i'll give you the best tactic i have the principle is to start reframing your role as the person who helps us figure out what the real challenge is rather than the person who has the fast answer and if you can sit with that and go yeah in my role as a sports coach or an other coach or an uh, executive or a middle manager if i played the role of the person who is going to help us make sure we're working on the real problem rather than the person who's seen as the source of always has the answer although it's never the right answer everybody wins from that and then you're like well how do you do that well i'll give you two questions that i think can be really helpful um, and these are questions that come from the coaching habit book um, the first question is the focus question and the focus question is what's the real challenge here for you what's the real challenge here for you and the way that question is built matters, right? Because you could ask somebody, so what's the challenge here? And that's okay. When you go, what's the real challenge here? It becomes much better because you're saying to them, there's a bunch of things that are at play here. What do we think the real challenge is? Mm -hmm. Now you're making them think, you're making them work, you're making them engage and figure this stuff out. But then when you go, what's the real challenge here for you? you swing the spotlight from the problem to the person who needs to solve the problem. And that's where the real learning and the insight and the aha happens so that the person that you're coaching gets smarter and more confident and more competent and more self-sufficient and more autonomous and as a coach in whatever discipline, that's what you want. You want people to have that ability to go, I'm, I'm smarter and wiser and better because of the work you've been doing with me. The second question, Cody, is, and what else? This is, if you want one question to help you stay curious longer, this is probably it. And what else? Because it comes with the insight that their first answer is not their only answer, and it might not be their best answer. So A, and what else, helps you kind of squeeze more bang for your buck from any other question. But the second piece is, and what else, helps you tame your advice monster so that you get to stay curious longer. So I've used particularly the first question quite a lot in just discussing Aussie rules football with Canadians. My team are all native Canadians who at the age of 23 or 24, once they've finished playing university sports, whatever they play, and they yeah. walk past the field down in Toronto and they see these weird guys with sleeveless shirts and short shorts kicking a, a weird ball, They from there they have to learn to do things like kick a drop punt. Or if you follow right. the NFL, they call it an, an Aussie punt, but it, it spins <laughs> backwards okay. yeah. and is very, very, yeah. very accurate. And, and so we've got... You know, people that are learning that skill at 25 to 30. And often that's, yeah. that's the, the question that I get from a, a technical perspective in athlete development is how do I get the ball to, to drop properly onto my foot? How do I do this? But ultimately, once I started digging into the, the, the actual problem, the problem turns out that they don't want to kick the ball at all. Right. You're actually overcoming a fear of inadequacy rather than a fear of mastering the skill. 
Ah, that's that's perfect. And that's the power of this question is what's the real quick challenge here for you? We'll often take it from being the external technical challenge to an internal personal issue. Mm-hmm. And it goes it goes deeper and it taps a more root cause. And you think about that in any perspective in a workplace too. I know, again, we're, we're, we've put the spotlight on sports, but those one-on-one conversations you have with usually your manager where your manager's having the conversation with you and you never really get to the real problem. You never really get to the, the fact that you have a problem with Sally or that right, exactly like that's the actual problem and the work itself, the, the, you know, what Microsoft suite of product you decide to use or what palette of red you decide to use isn't actually the problem, but we never really, really dig into it. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I've got this problem with the uh, palette of red. Well, why is that a problem? Well, Sally insists I, I'm using it. So what's the real challenge here for you? Well, I'm actually frightened of confronting Sally. And it's gone from you know, a Microsoft problem to how can I get better at dealing with conflict? It's a completely different conversation. Yeah. If you've been giving them the advice on how to call up the color red, you'd be spending a lot of time solving the wrong problem. You mentioned the coaching habit at the start of that answer. And I want to ask you about that. I, I ask this question of most of the authors that I've had on the show. What are your reflections on the book itself? Not only just what it's done, but what people have taken away from it. An example I use is that I kind of have this picture in my head of like Malcolm Gladwell thinking to himself, the 10,000 hours thing wasn't my favorite section. <laughs> but that's what everyone took away from it, right? He probably yeah. loves, and Seth Godin talks about this all the time. He's like, the, my favorite book was one that no one bought. Yeah. And so I'm not saying that necessarily for you, but what, what are your reflections on the coaching habit, you know, like four, four, four years later? Yeah, about four years later. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, first of all, there's a dash of amazement that it's done so well. You know, I spent three years trying to get this published with a regular publisher and couldn't get them to bite so self-published it and so one feeling immediately is a sense of smug (laughs) smugness like see i knew this was going to be a good book you bastards Uh, yeah you (laughs) bastards um so here's the advantage of me having spent three years and writing that book 10 times before i finally got it published is that the book itself became really fine-tuned, really lean. There was just nothing in it that was a waste of time. In part, that was because I always set myself the goal to write the shortest book I can that is still useful. So I'm like, keep taking stuff out. People don't need more words in their life. And just through the process of writing and rewriting and rewriting, things really get better. Even though it's, it's excruciating at times, writing is rewriting. Um, but then in terms of what people take away from it, it really varies. And maybe that's what's been so delightful because you kind of hope for it, but you don't know if it actually happens, which is the book seems to have an evergreen quality to it. It works, you know, four years later, it's as popular as it was when it launched. Um, it, I get emails from people who are parents going, this has changed my relationship with my, with my teenage child. I get things from uh, frontline managers going, my first manager job, this is really helpful. 
I, you know, two months ago interviewed the head of sales for Microsoft on stage in front of 4,000 people about how this coaching has changed his relationship with the entire sales force of Microsoft and is changing the culture at Microsoft. Um, you know, I, I've had sports coaches have that similar conversation. So I think what's been so delightful is to hear the many different ways that it struck a chord and to, and to Seth Godin's point, in some ways you write a book and then you put it out in the world and you go, good luck. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. Uh, I, I have fun. I hope it works for you. And what people get from it is entirely up to them. And one of my favorite bits from the, the advice trap book. And I just got the, I just got sent the book yesterday. So I've got my first ever copy and I'm holding it in my hands. And in the first couple of pages, um, the, there's a two-page spread on on what people said about the coaching habit. And, you know, I picked a bunch of nice quotes from Amazon, you know, five stars, this is absolutely brilliant, five stars, this is a refreshing guide, five stars, lead with the what, not the why, and kind of people going, this is a really good book. And then I got the last one is one star, the worst book ever written, <laughs> exclamation mark, from Sonny Davis, whoever Sonny Davis is. Sonny. Like, Good on you, Sonny. <laughs> but, but part of it is just like, I mean, first of all, I mean, part of me just wants to say, Sonny, Sonny is this really the worst book ever written? Ever. Are you sure you couldn't find another book that was worse written than this one? I bet you could if you look. But putting that aside, the real point is Sonny did not like this book and that's fine. And uh, different people take different things from it. Most people really like it. Some people like Sonny really don't like it at all. I would concur. That, and that's a similar kind of. Like with, with Sonny or with me? Well, yeah. I mean, as well as being married to my wife, you think I wrote the worst book I've ever written. So yeah. this is just going downhill fast. I'm kind of upset that my Amazon review, which, <laughs> which built on top of Sonny's, I went okay, further right. than the worst book ever. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> just tried to start cutting you down personally in my one. But uh, <laughs> no, in terms of it, it's, it is truly fascinating what people take away in so many different scenarios and what I hadn't banked on. And again, I self-published mine too. I wasn't interested in publishing at all. I, I knew that I was just going to self-publish all along. I didn't want someone telling me this passage didn't make it or did make it. These are, these are my ideas. And, and what's really interesting is now as we get towards two years later and people revisit it, and I'd never banked on this, but they actually take away different things. Right. And I don't, I don't know why I hadn't banked on that. Cause I know that I do that myself when I reread certain books, you know, four or five years later, you're like, Oh yeah, I've changed. And so the book has changed. Yes. You know, it's kind of that idea of the, the man in the river and both of them will never be the same. That's right. But, but I hadn't actually banked on that for my own content. And so now I've just started experiencing that as well and that people are now coming back with their second email being like, I reread it and that bit about the Icelandic national soccer team was amazing. I hadn't noticed it last time or that's whatever. Great. Yeah, that's really nice. You, you, you have this idea in your head that it's a, a, a still organism, but the book actually evolves with the people, which is really, really cool. That is cool. 
you mentioned the next book you were holding it. I've read it. So thank you for letting me read it before it's available. Um, Let's talk about that. Why, why did you, it appears to me as, as a bolt on, not only from the way it looks, but also just this, this, I want to explore. I'm not that I miss something, but it's, it seems that you've gone, there's something else here, which is ironic that that's one of your questions. (laughs) But what, what made you, what made you go back to well with, this particular idea, you know, the advice trap. Yeah. You know, it, it was the insight that whereas some people maybe like you, Cody read the, the coaching habit and went, Oh, these questions are great. I, I got it. And you start using them and you start adding it to your repertoire and you become more coach like and your conversations are better off or whatever. And I'm like, I love that. And I love hearing those stories, but that's, I haven't had, I've had a lot of emails, but I haven't had three quarters of a million emails going, this has changed it for me. And I know there are some people who read the book, like the book, like the questions, have struggled to change the way that they act and they behave. So what this book does is it gets deeper into the, why do we resist curiosity? Why is advice giving so seductive and so easy to make out default behavior? And so really what I was doing in, in, with this book is going, I'm going to help tackle the deeper dive to going, what is it that, that keeps us going? Even though I kind of know better, I'm still going to tell them what to do because I just get something from it. And it's really exploring those, making more explicit the prizes and the punishments for giving uh, advice, what you get from it, because you do get something from it. You get sense of, superiority you get a sense of control you get a sense that you're saving the world but what's the price that you and others in your organization pay for you being the person with the answer every time and once you start seeing those choices the choice to become and stay more curious becomes easier do you see this as being something that is at its core crippling organizations I'd frame it slightly different, which is what would be different if people and teams and business units were able to bring more curiosity to more of their work more often? I'd hazard a guess that you'd have people who are more engaged and more creative and more confident and probably more self-sufficient, and you'd have teams that were more likely to be working on the real problem and making more of a difference and having more impact. You have an organization that was more resilient and better able at change and more agile. Really, I think curiosity has the potential to transform all of those different units, the individual, the team, the organization in a way that is for the good. Hmm. Yeah, I guess what I was was trying to get at was this idea of a little bit what you're talking about at the start where certain people that might be kind of predisposed to coming up with the answer or giving the advice, what we have tended to do is push those people up to the top of the organization at the top of the pyramid. And then we can't get them out. So um, there, there becomes this, not the cripple of the organization, but there becomes this crippling point of, we're stuck in that kind of top down 
methodology that we're trying to move away from, from an organizational design perspective. Yeah. But it's, but it's difficult because you, it, and it's going to take a lot of time. I think there's an appetite for it. Yeah. But we kind of need to rip the framework down before we start dealing with the tactics. And as far as I can tell, the framework remains the same. Yeah. I um, mean, it, in there, most places. There's, um, there's a hierarchy and uh, lived experience for people saying, you know what, being the person with the answer is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But I think lots of people, as they move into more senior positions and organizations, they just suddenly go, I can't have the answer <laughs> to all of this. My, <laughs> my span is too wide and the, and the world is too complex. And I've hired a bunch of people who are technically proficient and I'm trying to be smarter than they are, whereas I'm trying to do a whole different job to who they are. So I do think that there's lots of people who get to a more senior position in organizations who go, you know what, I just I give up trying to be the person who knows what's going on here because I'm resigning myself to, to going that's impossible. But I also think the, the other part is true, which is in many organizations, people are like, it is now literally impossible for me to know what the answer is, but I'm still going to pretend that that's my main job, even though I'm an SVP of something or other. So I feel like I'm going to have to have the answer all the time because I want to be the smartest person in the world, in the room. And I want to make sure that nobody else ever struggles and they never have to stretch or grow or learn. And I want to make sure that I never lose control or never give power away. And if you're like that, then you've got an organization that is struggling with this challenge. Yeah. And the book is out February 29th. February 29th, 2020, exactly four years after The Coaching Habit came out. So The Coaching Habit's first birthday, but four years. (laughs) So I know you push back on praise, but I'm going to praise you for a second because what I love about The Coaching Habit and The Advice Trap is that even in the way that your books are presented – bucks the popular convention and i know part of that is because <laughs> because the publishing houses probably push back on you but right. as, as someone whose show and book and uh, brand and persona is around where others won't and going where others won't and doing things that others don't do yes both your uh and I'd heard you say before that you um, cut out all the fluff out of your book. Yeah. And then also you've, you've presented it in a very different way, including like linking to podcasts in a hardcover and things that uh, would, would give any publisher a fit. But <laughs> I, I want to thank you because it, that then creates a pathway for someone like me to be able to do that as well and replicate that and say, you know what? No, I, I'm uncomfortable with fluff as well. And so 160 pages is plenty. So, I just want to say thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, I, yeah, I do. You know, the experience of a book really matters. I think lots of great books don't get read because they're just they're a bit daunting. There's too many pages, um, and actually, it's been one of the cool things to see a bunch of books showing up in the marketplace that have a somewhat, maybe a somewhat similar design to some of the stuff that I've done in the coaching habit, mm-hmm, yeah. and going. You know, I don't know for sure, but I think perhaps it's been an influence for them. Yeah, that's wonderful. Let me ask you this. Yeah. The balloon incident. 
<laughs> have those have those documents been declassified? No, those documents have that there. I, I I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. yeah. You know what the truth is? It's far more interesting when I just say to people, it's the balloon incident, it's and the then people incident. can speculate. <laughs> I, if I tell the story, it just it diminishes the magic. <laughs> So to explain to people in Michael's bio, but on his website and his, his speaking bio, it he says uh, about the balloon incident and what was it? You were you weren't allowed to go to the school dance, was that it? No, I was I was banned from my high school graduation. Graduation. <laughs> left, left law school, being sued by one of my law school lecturers for defamation. Yeah, I've got, so, I've got a bunch of proud failures in my past. Well, no, me too, and that's why I asked. So I, I was suspended from for mooning out the back of the school bus uh, on the way back from our, our grade nine, I think, football tournament. So which which is I got suspended for a day. They gave me the Friday off, and uh, and now it's ended up being a great story. Exactly. If, if there's one thing to get suspended for, mooning is a pretty good one. And I've never fully understood the whole point of suspension. I'm like, so you're saying that I don't have to come to school. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so I had, exactly. I had a long weekend. I had the Friday yeah. off, no homework. And I sat there and played Nintendo. So it was actually a win. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> you showed me. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, damn. Put me in my place. Yeah. <laughs> Other than you've got a book launch coming up. What mm-hmm. what Netflix show or Wikipedia page or rabbit hole have you been down recently? Like what's something maybe outside your sphere that yeah. has captivated you that maybe you didn't think would, but you, you've just kind of turned your head a little bit like a little puppy dog, so like that curiosity. <laughs> well, um, our, our, we rent an apartment and the people who live in the apartment are below us. Andrew is a great reader of graphic novels and I dabble, but not no, no expert by any means. And he's like HBO have a new show Watchmen mm-hmm. and Watchmen is based on a classic graphic novel. And he was like, but read the graphic novel before you see the HBO show. Cause many people have tried and it's always been a failure to convert this graphic novel to, to the silver screen. But the HBO one, they, they reckon they come close. So I'm, I'm reading Watchmen at the moment, and it really is an, a pretty amazing work of art. It, it plays with narrative. It plays with your sense of what a hero is. You know, it's kind of dark and brilliant. So that's fantastic. And then we're watching on, uh, I think it's Netflix or maybe it's Amazon Prime, a show called Catastrophe, which is, uh, in short, first episode so this isn't spoiling anything in the first five minutes um american man irish woman have a drunken one night stand and uh end up (laughs) together and uh, she gets pregnant and they decide that they're going to try and become a couple around this pregnancy and brilliant writing nice kind of uh, play with North American humor and that kind of drier British humor. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very, it's beautifully written. You know, sitcoms, you have people in sitcoms just saying stuff that people never actually say in real life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, whereas this is written in a way that feels absolutely genuine in terms of this is language that normal people say in normal, messy, 
funny, confusing situations. Yeah. It's funny. We were talking about that idea of cross pollination before, because I, I've watched, was it living with, living with myself, living with yourself and it, right. it, it, yeah. So you've got that British American or Irish American crossover as well. And so you, you bring the kind of showmanship and pageantry of the American uh, style with the, the amazing writing and, and even just the most mundane dialogue in Britain tends to be a hell of a lot better. Uh, that's a magical combination. It totally is. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, it's, very impressive. You know, there's a lot of work going on to make something that seems as elegant as that does. All right. Time to plug away. Where can people find you? Where can they get the new book? Where can they get the coaching habit? Where can they, whatever you want them to do? Sure. Well, look, I would say if you're going to go one place, go to the advice trap.com. There'll be some downloads and stuff you can pick up from the book, but there's also um, a questionnaire to figure out, which of the three advice monster personas are you? You know, which one has, which one are you most rabid with at the moment? So if you're curious and exploring your advice monster, the advice trap.com is a good place to go. Um, more about me is at uh, mbs.works. And if you happen to be interested in our, our corporate offer for uh, training on coaching skills, box of crayons.com. Wonderful, mate. I'm, we're going to go out for a beer and you're going to tell me the balloon incident story off air. It's an off air, it's an off air beer story for w- sure. Wonderful. Well, let's do that and uh, good luck with the launch. I know you're going to absolutely kill it. I know the book's doing well pre sale anyway, but uh, congratulations. Uh, happy book day. And Thank uh, yeah, you. thanks for coming on the show, mate. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.